we are still in the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, and we get this morning to the Last Supper, which is an important, memorable moment. But it's worth remembering where we've come from. Uh, in particular, since chapter 11, we've been seeing the, certainly Jesus in conflict with the religious leaders, but we've also been seeing a kind of mounting drama with his disciples. And we've noted along the way, there is kind of this mysterious thing going on clearly in the background here that, you know, on Palm Sunday, of course, everybody was excited. His disciples saw this as a moment of victory. The crowds were cheering him. But by Good Friday, his disciples have all run away, and the crowds are crying to crucify him. And so, bear that in mind as we're reading here and we're thinking through what's going on with those who are with Jesus. So we pick up in chapter 14, uh, in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come to rest in Jesus, to be renewed by his word, and to be reinvigorated for our calling, let's 
turn to him in prayer. Father, we need you to speak through your word. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts that are open to what you have to say. We pray most of all that you would show us the grace of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, have you ever been to a weird, awkward dinner party? Uh, there's an episode of The Office when Michael Scott finally con- convinces, well, really kind of manipulates Jim and Pam to coming to a dinner party at his house. And, of course, Andy and Angela are also there, who are just the worst. And uh, <laughs> Dwight shows up as well, uninvited. And, uh, and of course, the, over the cor- they get there, and... Uh, and Jan informs them she's just put the asabuco in the oven, so it'll be ready in about three hours. So, you know, it's just, you're just imagining hours of awkwardness opening up in front of you. And that plays out pretty much, true to form. But this is not quite so, uh, this is not the ship of fools that is uh, the office, but it's a strange meal. I don't know what exactly the disciples were thinking was going to happen at the Seder. I mean, they kind of knew the script, right? There's a pretty standard way this is supposed to play out. It it does not play out that way. But more importantly, what Jesus does here is invites us to see not only this one meal, but to see what he gives his people to feed on forever. So we'll see how Jesus sets the scene. We'll see the guests who don't deserve to be there. And we'll see that he still provides a meal for us. He sets the scene. He invites the guests that don't belong. But he still feeds everyone. Uh, This story begins, or this section begins kind of like how the triumphal entry begins. There's a bunch of logistical stuff. Verses 12 to 16 kind of seems superfluous. I mean, the Gospels are pretty economic in the, in the detail that they give. They're, they don't tend to elaborate a lot of extra information. But just like at the beginning of the triumphal entry, at the start of chapter 11, here we've got a bunch of logistics about, you know, the disciples going in and uh, what they're going to find. And it, honestly, the, the commentators debate about whether Jesus is simply predicting what they will find and telling them what to look for, or whether Jesus has already made plans. And he's telling them there's already a guy there who's waiting for you. I, I don't actually think it really matters very much. <laughs> uh, because the point isn't whether Jesus knows the future. Because we already know he knows that. <laughs> Or whether Jesus makes plans, because we know he does that. What we are seeing here is that Jesus is taking a peculiar care, a peculiar attention to detail, to make sure that he sets up the scene, to set up the situation just so. 
He's setting up a Passover meal. Now, this is uh, the Seder meal that starts off uh, the, the whole festival of the unleavened bread. This is hearkening back to Exodus 12 and 13, uh, to the Passover, the original Passover in Egypt, when Israel was finally let go from slavery. It is the Passover that, is, that was their salvation from bondage. This is, it takes place during the last of the plagues, right? The death of the firstborn. That God judges Egypt. He shows up and the firstborn in every house dies. Unless, of course, they spread the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And death passes over, passes by. And so, central to this, of course, is the lamb itself. And that's, in many ways, the, the centerpiece of this meal is the lamb whose blood was given in their place. There's other pieces of this meal, too. There's, of course, the matzah bread, the unleavened bread, because um, they were in a rush. It couldn't rise, right? So they had to bake it up as it was. Uh, and that bread is often referred to as the bread of their affliction. This is, uh, and of course, is prominent here in the story. The other thing that comes up in this story, there are other elements to this, which I'm not going to go into for the, for the time being, but there were, there were several glasses of wine that you would drink and, and remind everybody of the blessings of the covenant uh, with each of the glasses. Uh, we don't know exactly which glasses <laughs> it is that Jesus picks up here, and again, scholars debate that, but we will see in a, in a moment that isn't the most important thing. What I want us to see, though, is that Jesus has gathered them for the covenant meal of remembrance and of refocusing on the event of redemption. Almost all of our vocabulary about salvation comes from Exodus. Jesus is very intentional here. He wants the Passover to be the interpretive framework, the primary lens through which they understand what he's about to do. It's the thing that he is accomplishing, is the fulfilling of the task of salvation. Now, this is important to understand. Even, even here, when Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him, he says it's according to the Scriptures, according to what is written. Uh, later on, he will quote Zechariah when he talks about all the disciples leaving. And it's interesting that Jesus all along and the disciples after him throughout the New Testament will continue to say that what Jesus do, did at the cross and at his resurrection, was according to the Scriptures, was in accordance with the Scriptures. And what they mean, let's be careful to understand exactly what they mean. They're not saying he died just like the gospel writers recorded. That's not what he's saying. That's not what any of them are saying. They're saying he died just as what we call the Old Testament said he would. You get the distinction? 
We're not just saying the facts, they're not saying the facts were recorded because actually when they were writing them, they weren't written yet. (laughs) They're saying just like the pattern that was already established. So, and you know, this is obvious when we talk about something like prophecy and that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that was told about him. But I think sometimes we imagine that Jesus is walking around with a checklist. He's got a long list of all the different prophecies and thinking to himself, okay, well, I need to go, let's see, today let's knock this one off, the checklist, and let's set up a situation so this one's, this one's reflected. You know, we talked about the triumphal entry, right? He, Zechariah 9 is quoted in that one. It's not like he's walking around thinking, okay, well, we're going to Jerusalem. Now would be a good time to get Zechariah 9, 9 checked off. That's not how prophecy works, right? Not if it's real prophecy, right? Rather, the prophets are shown what Jesus will do. And so they tell it to us ahead of time. And another thing that's important to understand, and this is maybe, keep this in mind, mostly what the prophets do is reflect on what's already happened beforehand and talk about the Messiah conforming to the expectations of what has already happened. So the prophets are often thinking backwards already to the way in which salvation worked beforehand. God's acts of redemption have already worked out, using that as the template to talk about the Messiah who is to come. So that all along, when when Jesus is talking about things being done in accordance with Scripture, when Jesus is setting the table, setting the scene... He's expecting his, his followers to know the word. And that what he does is given form, is given richness, is given depth, the more we understand the word. The interpretive lens through which we understand Jesus is the Old Testament. It is the acts of redemption in the Old Testament that help us understand what he accomplishes. It is the sacrificial system from the Old Testament that helps us understand what he accomplishes. It's the law that helps us understand what he completes, what he does in our place. This means then that just as at this meal, so too with the rest of the Christian life, the setting of the table comes through his word. The way God prepares us for the work that he is doing is in his word. And we talk a lot about the Bible and the church for just this reason. (laughs) This is how we know. But it's helpful to understand, though, that the way that the Bible works is a record of what God has done. And the parts that are not that story are reflections on what he has done and what it means for us. That's why it is a covenant record. It is a covenant book. And that helps us understand, I mean, this is one important takeaway. It helps us understand what the Bible is and isn't. I think we all know that the Bible is not a cookbook. Maybe somebody is under... Uh, that misgiving, but it's not, right? I think we all know that. 
We know it's not a manual for car repair. Not only because they didn't know what a car would be, but that it's something different than that. But then we're often confused on other things. I mean, is it because there, there are other subjects that do kind of intersect at times with Scripture, but it's not really about that, right? Like science, for example, right? Like, I mean, there, there are times when it touches on that, but it's not a science book. Uh, philosophy, right? Like it's a, it touches on a lot of the issues in, in philosophy, but it's not a philosophical treatise. It's none of those things. It is the story of what God has done for us. As uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible says, right? There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories tell one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And this is, this, that's important to understand, right? Because a lot of times we want to make the Bible do things that it isn't meant to do. And okay, I mean, I get that there are aspects of, we have to think through and there, are, there can be fruitful thinking through, say, science and faith or philosophical questions in the Bible. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that work, but often we want it to be that instead of what it is, our story. We love to figure out those kinds of questions, but we forget that it is really our history, our spiritual history. This is what God has done for his people. And we may not, most of us probably, aren't, probably aren't biologically descended from Israel, but we are the spiritual heirs to the Old Testament. And, and so we need to be in God's word. But of course, we often treat it as if that's some sort of checklist item. Now look, I, there is, it's really important to be consistent in the word. And I commend you finding a consistent practice. So, hear what I'm saying. (laughs) You should be in God's word. But a lot of times we have a kind of checklist mentality. And here's the thing. Some of us don't do well with checklists. If I just tell you these are, as if it's some sort of adulting list, right? Like this is what it means to be an adult. You're supposed to do, you know, read the word, fold the laundry, Make your bed. I never make the bed. Uh, like, you know, like as if it's this list of like, here's what responsible adults do. And you should make sure to check that off every day. Some of us are terrible at that. Others of us are really good at that. We love that kind of thing, right? Love a good, love a good checklist. I feel good about myself when I'm checking the things off. Problem is, as you get further along in life, more things crowd in on your time, right? And you have to start picking and choosing what you actually get done on your checklist. And the more that we just understand the Bible as a, as a thing on our checklist to do, whether we were bad at it in the first place, or whether we just are normally good at checklists, but life catches up with us, we, it drops off. Because we just see it as a thing we're just supposed to do. 
rather than the thing that is most important for me actually understanding who I am in this world. The story about who, we, who I really am, who my family really is, about what I really love. See, there's a, a difference. I mean, maybe you have, some families do more of this than others, but some, a lot of families, would tell, well, every family at some level tells stories about itself. Some families tell lots of stories, some tell maybe less, but every family tells stories, right? There's those embarrassing stories your parents still tell about you, even when you're an adult. Uh, hopefully you're a little less embarrassed about stories about when you were three, when you're an adult, but there's still stories about you. And uh, this is what we do in Scripture as we come to hear the stories about who we are. And not just individual stories, but the story about what God is doing to redeem us. And that's why there's a, there's a thing called the, sometimes called the kernel and husk fallacy. Uh, why we shouldn't fall into this. And the idea is, sometimes we approach Scripture as if, like, well, that story or that poem has just a key takeaway for us, right? And once we kind of talk it through and find out what the main idea of it is, then that's what we need. And we just get to walk away. We'll walk away with that. And I don't need to keep thinking about the story. Keep thinking through the poem. But if we understand this as our story, the peculiarities of how David's life works out are not just incidents around an idea. They are warnings to us. They are examples to us. They are head-scratching curiosities about our spiritual family <laughs> sometimes, right, that we don't know what to make of. They become not less important but more important, the details of who did what and when and why and how. That turn of phrase in that psalm is not just an accident, but it's deeply meaningful. Because it's not just about an idea. It is about a way of thinking, a way of loving, a way of interacting. You see the difference? The more we see it as a checklist, the more we'll tend to think, well, I just need to take this idea. I need to find out what the idea is in this passage and just get that and I can forget about the rest of it. But the more that we understand it as our story, the more we want to know the details of all the stories. <laughs> the more we want to think more deeply about each of the Psalms, about what the prophets are doing here in this difficult passage. You see, could we enter in with a curiosity because it's our story? And the more that we see those individual stories part of the story of what Jesus is doing what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection, what he's doing even now in our lives. So you see Jesus setting the table. But notice who comes. He invites his disciples. And they, and Jesus immediately starts off the conversation awkwardly. Verse 18. They're here for the meal. And instead of somebody asking, why is this night different than every other night, Jesus starts off with, 
one of you is going to betray me. This meal is going very differently than they thought, right? <laughs> Starts a confrontation. Of course, they all start looking around. Verse 19, yeah, it isn't me, right? And, you know, of course, I'm sure that most of them don't think they are, but even in asking it as a question, it has that feeling of, well, not me, right? That sense of that there's already some misgivings, right, that they don't seem to understand Jesus anymore. What he's doing is making less and less sense. Because again, they thought Messiah was coming to be a conquering king, to kick the Romans out, to restore the greatness of Israel. They thought about it in terms of horses and chariots. Not in the Son of Man giving himself for us. So they're they're uncomfortable. And of course, Jesus starts talking about Judas by the end, specifically. They don't know who it is yet, but... You know, he says, it's, look, it's one of you that's dipping in here with me. In the Gospel of John, we're actually told, he, he says, it's the one I give this piece of bread to and hands it to Judas, and they still don't get it. Because he sends Judas out, he says, go do what you're going to do, and they still think, oh, uh, Jesus must have had something he and Judas talked about. Judas needs to get ready, right? Come on, guys, get with the picture, right? It's like, I mean, that's what we think. But it also must mean that Judas appeared above suspicion. Right? And then after the meal, we'll get to the meal in a second. When Jesus brings us back up as they get to the Mount of Olives in verse 26, uh, he, and then he, he, reminds, he says, you will all fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah. It's a very confusing passage <laughs> uh, because, well, it is, a, it is in the middle of a section about the restoration of Israel, but what precedes this verse is warnings against false shepherds. Then Jesus says, but this verse about striking the real shepherd is about me. And Peter chimes in. Of course it's Peter. Right? Of course it's Peter. (laughs) Verse 29. Even though they will all fall away, I won't. Not me. And of course Jesus predicts what we'll see in a couple weeks uh, when when Peter does betray Jesus. But Peter continues to deny it. Even when Jesus literally gives him a prophecy, he says, nope, not me. I mean, the rest of the disciples probably were like, when he says they might, I mean, can you imagine being one of those disciples being like, Judas, why are you going to throw us under, or Peter, why are you going to throw us under the bus like that, you know? But it is telling, of course, that these disciples are a mess. They have all kinds of things that they want that are not Jesus' kingdom. They think they want Jesus' kingdom. But the more that the kingdom is being brought to fruition, the closer they get to the cross, the further they seem to be from him. And again, the proof that they, don't, that they are doubting 
I mean, if you think I'm overreading that passage, is what, what will happen by the end of this evening, of this story, is the very first sign of trouble they run. They're not ready. They don't know what Jesus wants, and they're not sure that they're bought in anymore. This is who Jesus brings. Which if we've been paying attention to the setting that, Jesus, that God's already given us in the Old Testament, maybe shouldn't be a surprise. Because the people that God redeems and the people that God uses are often well, they're always flawed, and often obviously flawed. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, not a good dude. I mean, we tell the story of Samson as a story of God's strength. Have you read the story of Samson lately? Go back and read that and ask yourself, is this guy following God's law? Is this the kind of guy that, we, that sounds like somebody who's paying attention to what God calls him to do? No. I mean, those are just a couple examples. We could go on and on and on. But God brings people who don't deserve what he gives to his table. He does it here, but that is always what he is doing is bringing those who do not deserve what he has to offer. It has always been the story that he is welcoming the unlovable. Those who do not deserve it. Now, we like to look on the outward appearances all the time. Just like the disciples with Judas, right? And the problem with our outward appearances is on the one hand, we will tend to be overconfident. Things are going well. <laughs> I've been reading my Bible every day, right? Uh, maybe the circumstances of my life are looking pretty good. Looks like God's blessing me. I, you know, I, I've, I feel like I've got a grip on sin in my life. Watch out. That's judging by appearances. On the other hand, when we judge by appearances, we also fall prey to despair. Because maybe you haven't read the Bible at all this week, this month. I'll stop there. Maybe you haven't been praying. Maybe there's a sin pattern in your life that you just can't seem to break. Maybe you feel like a failure. Unlovable. And if you judge by appearances, you'll be stuck there. See, the person who's overconfident, to be honest, you're just waiting for something to come and burst that balloon. But the person that's stuck in despair the only solution is Jesus. 
The only solution is to understand that from the very beginning, our assurance is not in how things are going for me right now. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think we should take encouragement from seeing God work in our lives. I'm not saying you shouldn't take some encouragement by seeing some progress, for example, in your sinful patterns. I'm not saying you shouldn't take encouragement from seeing ways in which God's softening our hearts towards others. I'm not saying you shouldn't see some encouragement in that. What I am saying is don't put your stock in that. Because first off, those things are only really seen for what they are over a long period of time. And second, and more importantly, the thing that makes us worthy to be at God's table is not ourselves, but Him. The thing that gives us confidence, despite our changing circumstances, despite our sense, internal sense of how we're doing, is confidence in Jesus Himself and what He's accomplished. Which gets us to the last point about the meal that God provides. Because when Jesus sits them down for the meal, what does he do? Does he just rehearse the same script that you do every Seder? No. He takes it up and reinterprets it. And the two items he specifically takes up are the bread and the wine. And instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, he says, this is my body given for you. This is his affliction in your place. And instead of reiterating the blessings of the covenant, he says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant given for you. It's his blood that makes the covenant good, that makes the covenant effective. And so what's missing in this whole story is the lamb. Did you notice that? I mean, some commentators have actually conjectured that, like, maybe they didn't even have a lamb at this meal. That's probably going too far. But, but regardless, Jesus is taking all the associations of the lamb and making them about himself. That it died, its body was given, and its blood spread for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And notice he gives it with a promise. A promise in verse... uh, Oh, gosh, I lost my place here. Um, (laughs) In verse 25, right? I will not drink it again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And this meal then draws our attention to what Jesus has already done and to what lies ahead. Got to keep your head on a swivel when you come to this meal, right? To see what Jesus has already accomplished and the feast that lies ahead. It is a foretaste. It's a thing we do to be reminded that there's something much better lies ahead. I mean, if you, hey, we tonight, happy coincidence, we have a communion service, right? And I mean, look, we usually do that as part of the regular service, 
and because of COVID, I mean, hopefully we'll be back to doing that <laughs> before too long, but so that everyone can come, those who are not certain about being here uh, with us in person when we're inside, makes sense, right? And we want to be able to celebrate that together. But look, we take this little wafer, like the smallest wafer you've ever seen, and a little thimble of juice, And God feeds us with that. Now think about what it will mean to actually be in his presence, face to face. There's a reason why the, the, the Lord's Supper has been a centerpiece of Christian worship from the very beginning. It's also a reason why it has been debated for so long and so hard. And I'm not going to sort through all that. You know, we can certainly take on the one hand a view that it's kind of magical. That somehow there's some sort of change that happens to the physical things we're eating and that has its problems. And on the other hand, we can think of it merely as a thing we do to call to mind what Jesus has done. Which is not necessarily, that's clearly part of what goes on, but that's not everything, Right? Jesus, and we see this again as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11, but Jesus is actually present with us, not by some magic trick, but by his spirit. And and then by partaking in these things, we see the sign of what he's done and we are sealed to him. The sign, of course, is to say, look, this this is an appropriate image of what Jesus has done, right? His body and blood for you. It is a reminder of the stubborn facts of what Jesus has done for you. He has given his body up and bled and died for you so that you can have confidence, so that you can know when you come to him that this table has been set for you, even though you didn't deserve it. He has brought you in and he will feed you. And it is a seal, that language comes from a a kind of royal seal, an imprint left on you because the Spirit works in it to convict us, to convince us of everything that Jesus has done for us so that we grow by feeding on it. You know, even John Calvin, even John Calvin, after this long section in his institutes on on the Lord's Supper, kind of going through all these different things, finishes, gets near the end of the section, he says, in light of all that, (laughs) I rather experience than understand it. I embrace without controversy the truth of God in which I may safely rest, that he declares his flesh the food of my soul, his blood its drink. I offer my soul to him to be fed with such food. I do not doubt that he himself truly presents them and that I receive them. At the end of the day, in all of our kind of theologizing around it, right, that this is how he feeds us. It's not the only way, but it is an essential way that Jesus gives to be reminded, but more than that, to actually be changed. Even now with a little foretaste, to be reminded, to see, to experience even, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
That is our confidence. Even if you're, if you're tempted to be overconfident in the appearances of what's going on in your life, it is a reminder that you only come by his body and blood. And if you are despairing, if you are stuck in sin that you can't seem to shake, if you're discouraged, if you feel like a failure, then you need to be reminded that you only come because of Jesus' body and blood. And he will still always feed you. This is the good news. Every other religion tells you, do this and you will be acceptable. But the gospel says, I have done this. So come and eat. Come and partake. Of everything that I have to offer. Of course you don't belong here. That's a given. But I've brought you in. See, Jesus was not stingy with his disciples. Even on the verge of their betrayal, he wasn't at all stingy with them. Jesus is happy even to feed Judas who will betray him. Jesus is not stingy with you. He will not be. He is not so let's feed on him through his word. Come to the communion tonight so we can feed on him and be reminded and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are fed not by our own cooking, not by the meals we come up with to feed our souls, but by the very blood and body of Jesus given for us. Thank you that that is the new covenant that we have, not of our making, but of yours. So feed us, we pray, even this morning and this afternoon, that we might have confidence, assurance, that in you, in your son, we have everything we need for our hungry souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.